Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. In this episode, I'll be talking with Lucas Marino. He's a systems engineer and integrated logistics support manager. He's also an entrepreneur and owner of East Partnership and MCS LLC about lifecycle engineering and integrated product support. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm the new host of the Engineering Career Coach podcast, and I'm a leadership and career coach that helps engineers and technical professionals realize their true potential. I love helping people make intentional career transitions and optimize their success. Often this means we work on developing soft skills like leadership and mindset to unlock their hidden potential and remove self-imposed roadblocks. And I founded More Than Engineering to bring together my love for engineering and technology with my passion for helping people improve and live more fulfilled lives and run a program now that's called the Engineering Career Accelerator. And you can find more information about that at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com. Now I wanna tell you a little bit more about our guest for today. Lucas is the owner of East Partnership. This is a multidisciplinary training company that serves those who manage and maintain complex physical assets. He served for 21 years in the US Coast Guard and has experienced at all levels of the shipboard maintenance from propulsion mechanic to chief engineer. He also served as a port engineer and naval engineering workforce and policy manager and as a branch chief of the Coast Guard's Engineering and Weapons School. Lucas also works for Amentum, where he leads life cycle logistics engineering efforts for Navy submarine programs. He's been featured on webinars and podcasts for the National Defense Industrial Association, American Society of Naval Engineers, UE Systems, Fluke, Rooted in Reliability, Rob's Reliability Project, Maintenance Disrupted, and iOffice's Asset Champion. Additionally, he serves as an assistant professor at Old Dominion University in the Department of Engineering Management and Systems Engineering and on the Board of Advisors for the Council of Logistics Engineering Professionals. Now, with that, let me bring you into our main segment with a quote that I think is applicable to today's topic. This quote comes from Dr. Moshin Tiwana. Projects we have completed demonstrate what we know. Future projects decide what we will learn. Now let's transition to the main segment of the show. Now it's time to jump right into the main segment of our episode. Today I'm visiting with Lucas Marino and we'll be talking about life cycle engineering and product support. Lucas, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'm excited to get into this topic and, and learn more about you, but before we really get started, can you tell us a little bit more about what it is you do on a daily basis and what exactly is life cycle engineering? It's pretty cool to be able to do this type of work, especially uh, if you're in a bit more of a mid-grade to senior role, because it's a way for you to kind of see the entirety of your work as an engineer, right? So we're basically establishing strategies to sustain complex assets over a life cycle. The field of work I'm in is submarines, ships, that kind of stuff. I happen to to manage a nuclear submarine program. We've got this massive asset, very complex, tons of different systems. It's a multidisciplinary approach to basically taking an engineer's perspective and rolling it into the plans for life cycle sustainment. 
Okay. So what does that mean that you get to do day to day? Like, what does that look like when you're looking at these big projects, these huge assets? What does that translate into your day to day? We're just basically constantly battling future risk, which is for some people, that's like a dream come true. For others, that's a nightmare. (laughs) They're like super risk averse or whatever. Like we kind of embrace the fact that hey, we've got this really cool thing and it's going to do some really cool things and it's going to do it in some amazing environments. So we have a lot of strategy development efforts, different projects dedicated, whether they're you know strict engineering projects or not so strict engineering projects that are more related to the product support side of the house. As a, a leader in that space, I'm leading these uh, initiatives and helping the team develop visions for strategy and then we go into analysis. And, and so it's a lot of like nerd speak, if you will, about like, hey, what's going to happen when we put this submarine in service and we've got this specific life cycle that we have to adhere to operating and maintaining windows? How are we going to analyze whether that's feasible? How are we going to analyze the workloading? How are we going to analyze the risks that World of Work are going to impose on these operational assets? How are we going to do that? Some of that is has been done before, but just in different ways as technology improves, as analytical methods improve, as engineering gets better, as all these things progress, we have more tools. We have better ways to look at this stuff. So I lead a team of analysts and we basically try to crack that nut every day and say, how do we gather as much data about the logistics product as possible? How do we gather as much data about the engineering tech data for this asset? Now that we have it, what do we do with it? How do we leverage that to make better strategies? So it's a lot of that kind of stuff mixed in with the more traditional daily meetings of let's keep the project moving like that, you know, every single day kind of thing. You talked about a lot of the analysis that you're doing because so many systems are involved with these huge assets and and different data points that you're collecting. So are there like formal life cycle assessments that you're doing? And, And if so, can you give an example of what that looks like? In a lot of the DOD space, uh, much of this occurs in what we would have traditionally called logistics engineering, which is when you hear the word logistics, don't think logistics like UPS and FedEx and that type of stuff, right? Military logistics is basically, in a nutshell, if you had to like boil it down, it's like everything that you have to do to sustain and care for this complex weapon system once it's built. Everything. Training the crew, supply chain, maintenance. I mean, depot maintenance, local maintenance, everything, manpower analysis, the training locally, the training for advanced technicians, I mean, all the way down to reliability engineering. I mean, they roll it all into logistics engineering. And so we perform a lot of the analysis that is naturally uh, developed in the course of logistics product development for an asset like this. And all that is like really big mumbo jumbo to basically say, we're going to do reliability analysis. We're going to figure out where the criticality is for failures. We're going to design maintenance programs to address failures and try and limit or reduce the risk of those failures through maintenance. Now we have to go develop strategies to incorporate that maintenance into the available time periods. And so you have maintenance task analysis, which breaks a maintenance task down to its little decomposed bits and pieces. You have level of repair analysis, which takes an asset and says, okay, we know we have to do this maintenance. Who's going to do the maintenance? Like, is it going to be local or are we going to have to hire someone to do it at a depot level, an advanced maintenance level? What kind of training do they need? What type of tech manuals, instruction, parts, consumables, everything. So it's the whole world of work that it takes to support 
the maintenance of the asset. And then of course, everything radiates out from that because you don't have all the parts demand without the maintenance. You don't have the supply chain implications. You don't have the training demand without the maintenance actions. So it's basically taking an analytical approach to say, instead of guessing like, hey, we think we're going to have to do this maintenance and then waiting for something to fail and go, oh, look, we should have. We can do a lot of predictive maintenance analysis and predictive supply chain optimization and predictive life cycle analysis to say, what's the best uh, plan going forward? Because really all we're trying to do is get as much operational availability out of the asset as possible. That's the goal, right? So you have like a it's ASABO is the metric, right? Um, operational availability. And we're aiming to maximize operational availability because in the military space, having the asset available and fully functional is goal number one. Well, it's kind of like an airplane. If it's sitting on the ground, it's not doing any good for having that asset. You got to be utilizing it as much as possible. Exactly. And the investment up front is like, we're going to spend the time and money to do the analysis so that we can best plan for that. Because if you move into the sustainment or in-service phase of, a, of an asset's life cycle, and you haven't done the proper planning to support that asset while it's in service, you're going to have a lot of unplanned downtime, right? You're going to have a lot of time when it's out. So you're reducing the value extraction from the asset. Like you develop this asset so you can get certain value out of it. And as a taxpayer, you should be like jumping up and down, thanking people for doing this type of work because you're extracting as much value out of that asset as you possibly can. As I'm understanding, it's almost like this huge optimization problem that you're dealing with, really trying to take all these pieces, manage the risk to get the, the highest chance of highest optimizations possible out of something. Yes. And, and in many ways, like, I mean, you can see where this could get really complicated pretty quickly. But one of the things I pride myself and my team on is we kind of like boil us down to the fundamentals and the basics. We're like, hey, look, you know, you're going to have to do these things. Don't drive yourself nuts, you know, do the right level of analysis, do it to the right level of rigor, get your plan started, roll things out, let's get it mapped out and let's get started. And then we can iteratively update it, right? So you don't just spend a decade analyzing something just to realize, you know, what is it? The, I think the saying is like, uh, no plan survives first encounter with the enemy. So you have to be realistic about how much to invest in that. And also done is better than perfect, perhaps in many cases. Because at least you've got something that you're working on and then you can build on that analysis. Absolutely. And we're real big on implementing agile methodologies into, into our work, which is kind of new for this field of work. Most people don't pull those two together. This work usually occurs in very bureaucratic organizations. So they tend to have very structured methodical processes. We try to incorporate a lot of um, agile practice into that to kind of accelerate the process a bit. So I'm curious, as you're moving through this high level, we've got all this analysis that's going on, and then you have to go all the way down to actual implementation, and you're dealing with multiple layers and different sorts of teams, you know, managers and, and technicians and, and everything across the board. Through the life cycle of these huge assets, communication must be just a bear moving through that, right? So how do you move through actually designing and, and moving through an effective communication plan throughout the team and throughout these projects so that from the plan all the way to execution, things can actually get done right? Yeah. So the first thing is making sure you have the right stakeholders involved because you have to make sure you're communicating with the right people. If we're in the process of putting a team of people we like to work with on a routine basis and that we normally associate with, but we exclude the end user, then our analysis is going to be flawed. 
it is absolutely going to be flawed because we haven't accurately captured the endpoint where the plan is going to reside, right? So number one is building the right team. Uh, number two is making sure that the people that you bring to the team are decent communicators. You can have subject matter experts all day, but if they can't communicate, their value to the team is drastically reduced. So that's the second part is not just that you have the right people, but that you select the right people based on um, their ability to communicate and integrate into the team properly. So it's more of a team building than making sure that you've got the right SME on the, on the books. You're going to try and make that happen at the same time. Third thing I would say is, is you want to re- establish some routine. One of the things I like about, and I'll just use Scrum as an example, because it's kind of a simple, agile approach that, that people are familiar with is that you do have that routine drum beat. You do have those routine sprints. You have a, a pace. You have an expected level of interaction. One of the worst things I think you can do is come up with a great idea, gather all these people, sign a charter, get everyone's authorities set up, and then they don't hear from you for eight months. And then when they're like, hey, is this a thing? And you're like, oh yeah, no, it's going to be great. They're just like, hey, dude, I'm not engaged, right? So part of that communication is engagement. And then of course, making sure that people understand the bounds and constraints of the effort. So one of the things we found that's most taxing on communication is when people become too emotional to communicate. And one of the things that really leads really smart people into that corner is when they just don't feel like they can see where this thing is going or what the requirements are or what the vision is or whatever. And sometimes if you're doing some exploratory work, I'll just put it that way, you have to loosen that a bit, right? You have to make sure people understand from the beginning, like, hey, look, these aren't strict, hard requirements. We're going to do a lot of exploration. If you're cool with that, welcome to the team. If you're not, you just can't function in that space let me know. We're going to help you get there or we'll find someone else that can. But setting that expectation in the beginning, I think is important because when you're requiring all these different paths of communication, you're also managing expectation. And I think establishing trust is obviously you know paramount uh, within the team and they won't trust the leadership of the team if they don't feel like the leadership of the team is being fully transparent with them and providing them with sufficient, I'm using the word sufficient on purpose, enough guidance to be successful. It doesn't have to be like overload. You don't have to hand them a novel on day one. So many different pieces. You talk about stakeholders, a trust, you know, actually moving through that, getting the right people on the team, whereas Jim Collins would say, get the right people on the bus from his great book. So you put together a, a number of different aspects and, and that's just the truth. You know, a complex project means that you have to deal with a number of different aspects in order for things to go right. It's not straightforward and simple. It's not a, a simple A plus B equals C situation. It's a moving, evolving thing that we need to keep iterating through. So I love how you put that. And I think you need to make sure people understand this is a long-term game. You have to be invested for a long time. I think people check the way they manage their performance. They check the way they manage their emotions, their responses, their communication when they understand how long they have to do it for. We don't do anything short term in my world of work. So it's like, hey, guys, we're going to start this thing. It might go several years or it might go you know, eight months, but people have to kind of understand how much to invest of themselves in this thing and at different levels before they can really succeed in communicating well. Because the roles may change over the time. I mean, leadership might be heavy at first to kind of get the path set, but then the leadership should probably back out a little bit, let the work happen, and then become a, you know, giving rudder commands, little corrections, course corrections as you go along. One of the things that my sponsor at the Navy has done a brilliant job of is uh, he's very visionary and he went 
out of his way to make sure he brought the whole team together to establish a core values statement because he knew we were getting ready to go into several years of really difficult, stressful, involved work. And he wanted to make sure that everyone had a voice in the development of those values and that we use them as the foundation of, of our building our team from day one. And so we all have that embedded in our heads anytime we are uh, working together. So I want to get over, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about the connection between the analysis that you do and then how that transfers and moves over to actual tasks and procedures that you're building in, in the engineering space. So talk to me about like, you know, maintenance task analysis, how that goes and supports and actually gets implemented into procedures that you actually end up working on. I love this question because it's, what are you doing if you're not making rubber meet the road, right? Like, again, it's a value statement, right? So every activity you embark on for life cycle engineering or product support strategy or whatever the case may be, it, all of it should be done with the intent of delivering value to the end user. We don't spend a year developing a strategy that isn't going to help the waterfront maintenance community or to help the maintainers and operators on the submarine do their job better. When you do something like a maintenance task analysis, which you know, I'll give you the real brief like 30 second primer on maintenance task analysis, in the FAMICA, the failure mode effective criticality analysis, they've determined that this item may fail in certain ways. There are certain failure modes that they expect to happen. Those reliability engineers that identify those potential failures in that piece of equipment, identify ways that you may address that failure. Many times it's through some type of preventive maintenance. I'll just use that as an example. So they say, okay, uh, we want you to change the oil on the car every 5,000 miles, something generally understood. And you go, okay, cool. So they send you a task and they say, change oil. And you go, roger that. The maintenance task analysis is then going to say, I want to develop a step-by-step -step procedure on how to change that oil on that particular system in that particular operating context. So it's different than changing the oil on a vehicle up in the tundra it has a different level of importance than changing one on in you know the desert in Arizona, which is different than doing it in mild climate area, right? They have different demands on the systems. They have different operating parameters. There's different supply chain and resource concerns, funding, all this stuff, right? So you do the maintenance task analysis in the operating or environmental context of the asset. You develop the procedure with those people, those resources, and you find out, do we need advanced technicians, basic technicians? What parts do we need? What supplies? What consumables? What training? What technical manuals? All this stuff. What facilities? What special tools and equipment? And the maintenance task analysis basically gathers all those data points. And you document them, and you can store them in your repository of logistics data, which is commonly referred to as an LSAR, logistics support analysis record. And so you've got this database of, of stuff. Now, someone like me who does strategy can say, you know, that maintenance community that has to execute all this maintenance, we've been building all these maintenance activities that they have to do. How much do they have to do? How many hours is it going to take them? What special tools and equipment are they going to need? How much is that going to cost us? We have to start assembling all that. So I can go in and extract all that data and we can start to assign cost to it. And we can start looking at the, at the footprint that all these parts and equipment and everything are going to take. How long does the crew need to be offline to do training, to get ready for this thing? And it sounds like a pretty simple, you go, of course you do that. Well, this submarine I'm talking about is two football fields long and four stories tall inside. So when you start going, well, how much is it going to take? It's the answer is a whole lot. <laughs> it's like, 
big money, lots of parts, you know, tons of maintenance. And so it gives us the ability to act, to gather all that data, generate it, aggregate it, cost it, and then use it to predict all those resource demands. Then we can go to the waterfront, the, where the maintainers are. We can say, okay, guys, this is what you're going to have to do. This is what you're going to need to do it. And by the way, this is how long it's going to take you. And this is how many times you're going to do it. And this is how much we predict it's going to cost. We've inserted it into the life cycle here, 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 and here, and go. That's fantastic and pretty amazing, but really comes down to trying to simplify those different parts and, and having that visibility there. And that actually brings me to the next question I'm curious about is actual project management when you're moving through these maintenance cycles and different things um, and how that connects with like, how do you move through the project management process and particularly trying to manage all these risks that you're dealing with? You know, what does that look like for you? I'm a big fan of tailoring projects and I'm a PMP and an, and an agile guy. So I try to stay away from like drawing a strip line between traditional waterfall type predictive projects and adaptive agile type. I think there's too many people that become purists and they're like, I work in this world. I work in this world. I think a master program or project manager figures out how to extract the most value from each of those methods and approaches and brings them together because, and I say this for a reason, I don't think two organizations that meet to do these things, because it normally with these types of assets, it takes a lot of big players. They're almost never on the same structure. So my shipbuilder is going to be super bureaucratic, and that's not a bad thing because they have a very methodical, specific way in which they have to design and build this massive submarine. And then on my software development side, we've got these whiz-bang you know, software developers, product development folks that are all up in DevSecOps, and, and they just eat, sleep, and breathe agile. We need to bring those together. We have to do a lot of tailoring. So I think the big thing you have to do first is assess, again, the operational context of your project, treat it like the asset, right? Figure out what's going to work best, what tools you need to have in place. Remember, risk is the blanket that covers everything. You have to be able to bring both the technical and the business sides of the project together in a way that uh, support the iron triangle, right? Like we don't want to sacrifice the budget or the quality or the schedule because of something completely within our control to prevent. I think from like a program management perspective, I want people to be technically proficient and accurate, and I want to give them the time to be able to perform the analysis properly. However, comma, I also need to respect the fact that time is of the essence and budgets are not infinite and we have to get moving, right? So I think one of the better things you can do as a project manager in this space is work with people ahead of the charter development to make sure that you properly account for the amount of time you anticipate this is going to take. I think a lot of times the good fairy drops out of the sky and says, hey, I've got this great idea. Let's kick off a project. All the right people say yes. And then the charter drops and then they're going, okay, well, when do we think we could do this by? And when you get all the experts in the room, they say, it's going to take two years. We're just pulling that random number. And everyone goes, whoa, we need this in eight months. At least you had that conversation. To never have had that conversation, you're set up for failure right off the start. So you have to be able to do all that before you get the charter established. The reason I say that is you don't want to start making promises after the charter has been signed. You want to be able to bring that charter to the resident experts, to those organizations and say, hey, look. I need your people for this long. I need them to do these things. I'm not going to be able to deliver like ironclad requirements right now. And I'm not going to deliver ironclad outputs right now, but I am going to tell you that I need them for this long. And this is where we're aiming. And the value statement is going to be really important at that point. 
we probably have some listeners here who are uh, considering working with, or maybe even are working with government or military contractors and things like that. So I'm curious what your experience is in working with the Navy in this case and, and the maintenance practices and how that differs from other industries in your experience. I've, uh, I grew up Coast Guard and then I worked with the Army for a little while and then now the Navy. And so what I've observed across the different areas, I've even taught project management to the Air Force, even though I don't really get to do that much uh, anymore. What I've noticed is that each of these communities has uh, very similar approaches, yet they're entirely different. Many of them speak a similar language. Again, I'm going to keep hounding an operational context, right? Environmental context. So when I design a ship and life cycle programs for an army landing craft, it is going to be different than it is for a nuclear submarine for the Navy. Not only is it because they're two different things, but because this army landing craft has to operate in a particular window in a particular environment, and it's going to carry a particular load and their resources are constrained to a different level than a nuclear submarine. And on the flip side, the nuclear submarine is going to go underwater and disappear. It has to be very self-reliant. They don't have time to just pop a line and say, hey, we're going to hang out on the surface here for two weeks and, and figure out how to fix this problem. So, you know, they have a, a very, very strong identity for uh, self-reliance. And so understanding your operator, understanding essentially your customer, understanding the operational context of the asset and the strategy you're putting in place, where that's going to exist, it determines how close any of those things are matched to reality. The worst thing you can do is give them something that doesn't match their reality. And if you give the army a Navy plan, they're going to be like, uh, where are we getting all these resources? And if you give the Navy the army plan, they're going to go, this operating context or window is way too short. We stay out at sea for months. And the Army guys are saying, hey, we want the Coast Guard model. And the Coasties are saying, I want the Navy's resources, right? So what you'll find is each of them is very unique culture, uh, very unique applications. But the common thread through all, all of them is that they expect high levels of proficiency in both technical and project management. On the engineering side, they want really good engineers doing great engineering work, meeting the needs of that particular service. And they want their projects executed in accordance with their own local contracting environment, right? Because contracting officers, although they're very much the same, they have different uh, means and, and ways within each of the services. You have fun learning a new language. Each of them has a bazillion acronyms that are their own. You know, you spend all your time becoming a specialist in a discipline, an engineering discipline, and then you go walk into that world and people are literally speaking in acronyms. I had to learn Coast Guard, then had to learn Army, then I had to learn how to speak Navy, and I'm still learning how to speak Navy, so... Lots of acronyms. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's crazy. And every engineering discipline has them, and certainly every service service branch has them, and every other form, every company's got them. And so you just got to speak that language and, and contextualize everything, just like you're talking about. And understand that one of the bigger differences, sorry, uh, but between all of those services and like commercial industry is the depth at which some of these military analyses dive. Like, when I stepped out of the service and started talking to non-DOD, non-military type entities about some of these analyses, they were looking at me like I had three heads. And they were like, wow, like you guys do all of that? It's like, yes. I've also seen where, you know, lessons learned from industry where generating a profit to survive is a reality. Man, the service could learn some things. <laughs> so anyway. I know you're pretty active on LinkedIn. And so I want to talk about in the context 
of social media and careers and kind of the impact that that can have. So can you share some of your thoughts on that? I think that engineers get a bad rap for being non-communicators. We push people to become senior engineers or engineering managers, right? Like be the greatest mechanical engineer that ever lived or the greatest engineering manager of mechanical engineers. And what you find is both of those jobs require communication. They both require you to be approachable. They both require you to have good people skills. It's not just one or the other. So for those that are out there, one of the better ways to develop your ability to communicate with others is to talk to complete strangers and do it in a respectable way over LinkedIn, right? So when I got out of the service, it was like, a, hey, you want to be a consultant? You have to go build a network. That's where you're going to find work. And so I was like, I've got to get a LinkedIn account. And I started talking to people, but you know what? Here I am many years later, and I have some of the best people in my professional life right now, I met strictly through LinkedIn. All of my business partners in my small business, LinkedIn. I can't tell you how many opportunities I've had to do podcasts or do webinars or be inspired to do those same things for myself strictly through my interaction on LinkedIn. So I highly encourage engineers to step outside their bounds a little bit, prove everybody wrong, just do it, share cool stuff. I don't care if you get one click, no clicks or a million clicks, it doesn't matter. Don't measure that stuff but measure the amount of engagement you have with your community because one day you're going to be looking at either getting a new job or starting your own business or like I do, hiring people, looking for new teammates. And you're going to have all this great network that you can tap into. If you don't have that, you're going to be at an extreme disadvantage in every one of those areas. Thanks for sharing that. And it's funny, you and I were just talking before we started recording that LinkedIn is the way that we both originally connected to Anthony, who runs Engineering Management Institute, and where, you know, it's the reason why both of us are even talking right now is I'll start in one way or another through LinkedIn and those connections and, and those conversations that we have. And so it can be hugely powerful in so many ways and open up so many opportunities. And, and I would only just kind of say plus one to what you just said. Yes, sir. And, and I only have one thing to add, knowledge share. Like, you know how much I've learned through other subject matter experts? And I never would have met these people. And they'll put like a, a simple post up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I never considered that. Like you just become a better professional by learning from so many more people. So anyways, that's last pitch. So Lucas, to end off here, if people were listening to our conversation thinking, hey, what Lucas does is pretty cool. I might want to try that out. What advice would you give to anyone considering pursuing a career that's similar to yours? Becoming a generalized specialist is a good thing. You may have heard that thrown around a bit in the service. It was always like a push and a pull, like this trying to find this constant balance between somebody that could be an engineer, but also operate assets. Like, you know, not just fix the ship, but drive the ship and become a captain of a ship one day. So professionally, that culture is kind of bred in and people that go through that route. When you step out, you see a lot less of that. So I think it's very good for people to become very diversified. This world of work I'm in is very diverse. Although we deal with many siloed specialists, many people that are really good at like, I need a downright expert in reliability engineering. And I need another expert in supply chain management because I am not a supply chain guy. And that is a whole nother world that I'm like, not even like, you talk about dipping your toe in, <laughs> is a big world of work. I need those experts, but I also need them to be understanding the other disciplines around them. So for any engineer, learn other people's world of work. You need to be an expert in your field, but you also need to be diverse enough where you can talk to the business line managers and you can talk to the operators and you can talk to the other uh, logistician types 
And you can understand enough where you can all make your programs better together because you're a diverse enough team that you can't just like walk around with, I'm just this type of engineer all day. And that's only going to prove to make you a better manager. So if you have any aspirations of leading an organization at all, you need to be multidimensional. You need to keep your eye on other areas. And then of course, in this world of work, it's kind of hard to get into it unless you go get a job working in either a contractor like I do, uh, supporting the military or working directly for one of the military branches. And there's tons of opportunity. Yeah, little secret, there's not a lot of people in this world of work right now that are young. So get in I mean, the door's wide open for young people to get into this career field and establish an identity and establish a profession and then grow. And they've got tons of opportunity because you know, you're not competing against a zillion people because most people just don't hear about or lay awake in their beds at night when their kids saying, gee, I can't wait to be a product support manager for a nuclear submarine one day. <laughs> it's just not something you hear about. But pretty cool stuff to get to work on. Really cool, right? So my product support manager, who I worked directly with, there's not a person that meets him that doesn't go, dude, you have an amazingly awesome job. And he goes, yeah, I know. Right, like every single time. Um, but you know, you have to develop those people over time. And engineers do like the cool job factor. That's a big deal for a lot of people. You can get on the cutting edge of tech. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to thank you. You shared some serious wisdom and insights here. At this point, we're going to transition to the take action today segment of the show, where we get one final takeaway from Lucas from this episode. Now it's time for our take action today segment of the show. I've been talking with Lucas Marino. And at this point, Lucas is going to give us a final takeaway, especially for those early to mid-career engineers and some suggestions that, that you can do to grow your career. So Lucas, take it away. You hear a lot about diversity in our career paths, uh, whether it be engineering or other technical disciplines. And a lot of times we associate the diversity with uh, getting more female engineers, you know, getting more young people into engineering. One of the bigger problems we have in, in my field of work is bringing in that, you know, younger workforce. Uh, you know, we're very actively recruiting with internships. This year, we were fortunate to have 25 interns with Amentum serving the Navy, which is just like a dream for us. What I've thought about in the context of that situation is something that I share with all my students that I teach at ODU as well. You know, whether you're starting out or you're at the midpoint in your career and you're thinking about how you can diversify or become more uh, professionally aligned to a future career path in senior positions, you need to light a fire that never extinguishes. Like, don't get comfortable. Like, and if you're getting too comfortable in your discipline, in whatever field of work you're in, then that's on you because you should be diversifying your knowledge, right? You need to be looking at much to the point made earlier about, you know, a multidisciplinary approach. When I was in the service, we used to pay to send engineers to graduate school programs that were not strict engineering graduate school programs. We had great engineers, but we wanted them to have project management experience. We wanted them to have business management experience. We wanted them to have strategy nailed down. We wanted them to look beyond the engineering discipline because all of those things are what really make the organization stronger at the top. So if you really aspire to become a better engineer or to eventually lead one day, you need to have an unrelenting fire for continuous education, and you need to seek diversity through education and other knowledge sources. Thanks so much, Lucas. This has been an in inspiring and insightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and I think our listeners will as well. 
if people want to learn more about what the work that you do or connect with you on LinkedIn or other places, where can they find you and learn more about um, what you're up to? You can find me at LinkedIn, right, under Lucas Marino. Uh, you can also find me at eastpartnership.org, which is a small business that I own that brings consultants um, and learners together to expand on many of the things we talked about today. And my email address is lucas at eastpartnership.org. It's pretty generic. You can reach me on LinkedIn all day. I'm, I'm always there for you. And, and I don't care if it's just to shoot the breeze about any of the stuff we talked about today or just to have a general conversation about life. I'm here for you. Thanks so much. And uh, keep up the good work and, and doing what you're doing. Thanks so much, Lucas. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. Please go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, where you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And also, don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Additionally, for those engineers who might be struggling with unemployment or feeling stuck in their current career situations and unsure how to make a career transition, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. So you can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. The strategies that you heard in this episode will be of no use to you unless you take action and start to implement them in your career immediately. To help you do that, we have designed a system that you can use at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. It combines live monthly webinars with PDHs, plus a private forum giving you access to coaches and premium content focused on helping you build your management and leadership skills. Join us for our next live webinar at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and we'll help you engineer your own success.